0: Ready to keep you company wherever you are. Carte Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week.
1: Following a massive rugby weekend, it's time for another episode of The Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. With us today is Daily Maverick Managing Editor Janet Hurd to help us make sense of the latest news. Here's what's coming your way. The Western Cape is under siege as gang violence and organized crime takes hold. A damning report on last year's Parliament blaze confirms what, well, we all kind of knew. Then, is this another life essedomenie on the cards? The horrendous state at Charlotte Maxeke Hospital's psychiatric ward.
0: Sources are saying that Maybe once or twice a day, the patients are taken to the bathroom by a nurse or security guard. If they have to use the bathroom between those times, they either relieve themselves on the floor or go in a plastic
1: bottle. And the train of hope that's bringing health care to the masses. Let's get into it. Good morning, Janet, and welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lizanne. Nice to be here. It's always great to have you. So I want us to get straight into our first story, and this one you brought to us, and it's the Western Cape organized crime issue. There's been a surge in mass shootings in the Western Cape, and according to research done by Daily Maverick, at least 26 people have been killed over a period of just four weeks, which is just, I, I can't even fathom those figures. It seems to be turf wars between the Americans, Clever Kids, and Hard Living gangs. And they seem to just be encroaching on the communities more and more. Yes, designed Cape
0: Town as this center of really bad gun shootings, particularly guns. I mean, the guns seem to just be prolific and they are all over the country, but Cape Town, in terms of the shootings, really, we seem to take center stage. You know, there's two real issues going on with the organized crime and then these gangs. We've got a lot of things playing out at the moment. There's been a surge. I think there always is a surge in criminal activity in the build-up to the festive season. And we have seen this playing out, the research that it wasn't really deep research, it was really just a pull together of that there have been all these mass shootings just over the space of four weeks where 26 people have been shot dead in places like Nyanga and Mannenberg and other areas which is linked to the gangs as you pointed out. The irony is that it actually these shootings are taking place a day after the launch of the nationwide safer festive season operation. What really struck me is this new shot spotter gunfire detection technology that the city of Cape Town is using, where they recorded 177 shots fired in 58 shooting incidents in various communities across the Cape Flats in just mm-hmm. two hours. So now wow. they've got gunfire detection technology where they can actually see the extent of this gunfire. And we've got a map which actually just shows this gunfire as it was a report by our reporter Valani Ledidi. On the one hand, we're getting more of a picture of what actually the level extent of the violence that communities live in by this kind of technology. Technology, Because it's actually bringing it home, but this is a daily reality for people. There's that and then there's what's also playing out is in the courts, the organized crime with regard to the various alleged gang kinpings like the MODACs and Ralph Stanfield. Those cases are playing out in court. So we've seen a kind of come together of what's happening on the ground. And then the, these court cases starting to unravel. We had the arrest of an alleged 28th gang boss accused, Ralph Stanfield and his wife. And that case is playing out in the courts so much is unravelling there and there's a lot at stake and it's actually what we came across our reporter Karen Dolly looked into who has written books on organised crime in Cape Town and is quite the expert of just how it can raise fears in communities and fears in courts and fears for journalists even to cover these cases because of the level of intimidation and there have been some incidents there that are quite alarming I mean this happens all over the world I think with big organised crime criminal cases but it really does make you uh, realise again just how a lot is at stake here.
1: Another aspect of it that I found quite frightening is the whole concept of splinter gangs forming across the Western Cape and also a spike in child recruiting within these gangs. And it just kind of made me think how the Western Cape government are planning on addressing this worsening gang violence. We've had the anti-gang unit, which, as you've just said, there have been allegations of that unit being infiltrated by the gangs themselves. There have been many other groups and methodologies to try and address the gang violence and it's just not worked. I think this is the
0: trouble with the gang violence story I've been in Cape Town newsrooms for a good while now and it's always been the story of Cape Town it's kind of so pervasive that people are actually numb to it and I think Mm. the danger is when you feel like it's not in your community so it doesn't affect you, there is still this very very wrong stereotype and perception that it's a Cape Flats thing and that's not the case. For instance Ralph Stanfield was arrested in, in Constantia. The way the issue is portrayed, it's happening on the Cape Plate, so it's not a Cape Town thing. It is a Cape Town thing. It's very much a Cape Town thing. We are all one. This is one community. And I think that also has not helped to find solutions together to fix the problem. And the gang fragmentation is very real. There was a, a piece done by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. We're unpacking the issues that you've raised, Lausanne about gang fragmentation, which is actually making it more dicey. And also that some gang leaders have actually been assassinated since 2019, was like Rashid Stachie and Lester Solomon and others. And that basically this actually causes another kind of dynamic within the gang structure. And there's a lot more inter-gang rivalry playing out. And the proliferation of firearms is just crazy. That spot is showing the level of firearms. And I just think of people living in communities where this is happening around them all the time it must just be so numbing and so so fraught. And young children, that's been a big thing, I think, since the COVID-19 lockdown. That's what the researchers are, are saying, that there's more more kids are being recruited, which also brings another level of danger, really, to, the, to communities.
1: On the 2nd of January 2022, just after 5 a.m., a devastating fire ripped through Parliament in Cape Town. The blaze left the National Assembly completely gutted. The same day, 49-year-old Sandile Mafe was arrested for allegedly starting the fire. Now, a report details how all of this could have been prevented. The question remains, will the decision makers be held accountable? I want to take us into our next story. It's also in Cape Town. And last week, the findings of an independent internal reports on the fire that gutted the National Assembly last year was released. It was a scathing report, essentially saying that the bare minimum had not been done correctly. So essentially, this fire could have been avoided. That's what the report is saying.
0: I mean, we all remember that even if you weren't in Cape Town, it was a holiday period, what we call Tweedana Villar, that fire just erupting across the Cape Town city bulb. And it went on for three days. So that's, I think the one thing that struck me when the report came out, is, gosh, Parliament is slow, tardy, not actually quick enough on the turnaround to actually get effect to things. I mean, and that is, we've seen that in so many cases. And then I think the report did show, I was just reading the first report that Daily Maverick came out with at the time of the fire, written by our parliamentary expert, Marianne Merton. And the headline said, our burning assembly, major fire racks Parliament building, raising questions about why no protection services staff were on duty. That was our headline right at... At the time. So what this report came out with was exactly that. That there's big questions about the decisions taken not to have parliamentary protection services people on duty. They were sent home for the festive season. They had basically withdrawn the steam from working nights and over weekends and public holidays during the festive mm-hmm. season. And this has been now seen as one of the big problems that if they were there, they would have been able to deal with the fire and this wouldn't have happened to the extent that it did. So that non-compliance with fire regulations. I mean, we knew at the time it's all been confirmed across multiple facets. Smoke detectors, fire alarm panels, emergency notification systems. A lot of the published summary spells that out. So, yeah, it confirms what we kind of knew in a way. And they also made some recommendations, which apparently they are implementing. There are questions being asked about who's going to take the rap for this. We've got an arson accused in court in almost a comedy of, errors and farce, that court case with Mafé of him being arrested. But really nothing is much developed with the court case because of various delays and psychiatric issues. And meanwhile, the officials in Parliament have got a lot to answer for. And I don't think that has taken place Merton points out in her report that the memo withdrawing the public protection services over the Feston season was signed by then acting Secretary to Parliament Baby Chiawa, and she's now retired.
1: There was quite a lot of focus on five individuals within the report, blaming them for the lapses in security and occupational health and safety standards and all of that. But I get the feeling they're going to become the fall guys in this situation while members in Parliament, specifically the Department of Public works and infrastructure will just sit comfortably back and and say well it's been resolved, not our problem anymore, let's forget about it and move on.
0: Exactly, I think that is going to play out. And in the meantime, we've got this, quite a tragic case of this accused Martha in court, mm-hmm. which is playing out at a, a totally separately, but you know, for which you just, it just seems that there's so much else at play and exactly what this role of Martha is. It's still so unclear really what actually happens. Yes. That's what's so puzzling. We're sitting still with a burnt parliament.
1: Have we learned nothing from the life acidimony tragedy that left 144 psychiatric patients dead and several still missing? That's the question we're asking as Daily Maverick uncovers yet another tragedy in the making, this time at Charlotte McRaeke Academic Hospital's psychiatric ward. It's Mental Health Awareness Month and an investigation by Daily Maverick has once again shown that the government simply does not care about the most vulnerable within society. The investigation highlighted a number of truly awful things happening within Ward 161. Can you tell us a bit about how this investigation came about? The
0: Maverick Citizen team are very plugged into the health in Gauteng in and beyond. Mark Hayward is the Maverick Citizen an editor. We've got Lerato, a new reporter who actually did this story. So basically, how these stories come about is through people who blow the whistle. And this is always the case where people who, in a situation where it's intolerable to work in those environments, seeing what's going on. And so a lot of this is from really, really brave sources who come out and reveal because mm-hmm. they actually know something has to be done. And we nobody wants another tragedy like the life esedimony tragedy where 144 psychiatric patients who were removed from esedimony Died from starvation and neglect. So we don't want that again. And that's why these kind of stories are so important to prevent another essodomene and to keep the spotlight on the health authorities. And this investigation into the hospital, the academic hospital, showed that in the psychiatric center, there's little or no privacy with hospital beds haphazardly placed in the ward's main room and pushed against the walls in the hallway. Because the psychiatric unit is full, there's no beds. They have to move to this other place. So I mean it's an accident waiting to happen and the conditions in which people are staying is untenable. And I just think it must be so hard on the staff there to mm. to navigate that. I just take my hat off to the people who are blowing the whistle here.
1: Absolutely, because it's so vital that we get eyes and ears inside of these units. Unfortunately, these people are often forgotten. They're just kind of dumped in spots never kind of spoken of again. Was there separation between patients or do they all just kind of share space and you know you're kind of next to a person who's very volatile and unstable.
0: There is a dedicated psychiatric ward at the hospital, but there are no empty beds. So mm-hmm. the, uh, it forced the hospital to make these alternative arrangements. And so these patients, these psychiatric patients, are in the emergency department. And sources were saying that these patients are being kept in an open area in this department ward. So yes, as you point out, they are not being kept in a separate area because of the overflow. There's no space. So that's where they are. There is no separation. And these sources are saying that maybe once or twice a day, the patients are taken to the bathroom by a nurse or security guard. If they have to use the bathroom between those times, they either relieve themselves on the floor or go in a plastic bottle. The source said the patients are being kept like animals. And I really think that is just, I mean, it's just so terrifying. When you read these things, it's like, when will that madness stop? How can people be treated like that? Mm-hmm. Apparently, they have got some security guards, but uh, Lerata and him saw patients roaming around the dimly lit ward and, and actually saw some lying in full view on gurneys in the hallway. Lerata and the the team found that the patients appeared to be heavily medicated and were dressed in what appeared to be dirty pyjamas. So they actually got close, besides the sourcing, actually got close to what was going on at the hospital. It's just really shocking conditions for staff and patients. You know, you think after esedomania, we need to get to the point where these kind of things are not tolerated. It will be interesting to see how this plays out in terms of the response. Hopefully this will lead to alleviating these conditions and making a plan.
1: The hospital staff are doing their absolute best to care for these patients. They they're working with what they have. It's mm-hmm. the department of health which is once again failing both the patients and the healthcare workers. And it's like they the department didn't learn anything from the life is a tragedy. For me, uh, you know, obviously as a
0: journalist seeing that they didn't actually, they were asked to comment, they were asked to respond as usual, given lots of time to respond. The health department actually didn't, hadn't responded, even to the mm. allegations in the story. So that also does indicate the level of the problem that we're having, because I know if I was accused of something, the first thing I would do is actually come out guns blazing and try and, prove otherwise <laughs> will it actually just fall on deaf ears or will there be action
1: it was called the train of hope by late archbishop desmond tutu launched in 1994 with only three carriages the Transnate pelo healthcare train has provided general health services dental and eye checks and a dispensary to rural communities across the country Now boasting 16 carriages, the train is one of the few public health success stories in South Africa. Keeping to health matters, I want to turn our attention to a slightly more positive initiative that's actually hugely effective and it has been since the dawn of democracy. It's the Pelo healthcare train, which I don't think a lot of people might be aware of. It's this healthcare train that's been serving rural and under-resourced communities since 1994. It's just amazing to see the life-saving services it brings to these communities. It's serving the people, allowing them to access state-of-the-art healthcare facilities that they normally wouldn't have access to. It's important that we remind people that there are working systems out
0: there. Yes, Lausanne, I mean, it's easy to just highlight the troubles within the healthcare system. There are some really, really good standout policy outcomes through the years. Seeing actually people getting the benefit of this healthcare, you know, actually lining up to get care, people in wheelchairs given hygiene packages, and people actually commenting about how they're so happy to actually have this opportunity to get healthcare from the train, which is going to be based at Dubeft in Soweto until later this month. Going to see sort of health service in action. going to the people, taking the health to the people there, and that's a really, really good example.
1: Now, we can't end today's show without mentioning the Springboks. I'll be honest, I'm still recovering from the match against France, so this past weekend did not help me in my recovery. (laughs) Um, My nerves are properly frayed. The overall consensus going into the game against England was that, you know, we're going to take this one home. The Springboks have shown us that they're the best, and, I mean, we saw that this past weekend. So now it's on to the finals.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's just so wonderful because our own little sport train ride that's gone on, gosh, for over a month. You know, it's been a wonderful period. Although South Africa's been hit by a lot of really difficult news, rugby has really been a fantastic lift for the country. And just a reminder of, you know, no matter what, you put your head down and you can just fix things and be the best. And and that's why this rugby story is just a, a wonderful tonic for the country at this time. And now I think I always, maybe I'm a glass half full person at heart. I kind of felt that we were going to get to this point. And it's just fantastic that here we are, we're going to get there to bring the trophy home.
1: Definitely. Thank you so much once again for joining us. It's been an absolute joy chatting to you today. Great. Thanks, Lizanne. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Cart Blanche, the podcast, available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms.